you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, where we will be reading chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. The title of the sermon this morning is Isaiah's Christmas Children, Courage in Trial While Waiting on God's Promise. When I have done this before, I had a different title, Courage in Trial While Waiting for a Remnant to Return. But on the nose, that is not so obvious to you, but it will, Lord willing, as we get into the text. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do right now, and I want to fill in for you some details about the historical context of what is going on behind the scenes that is giving rise to the intense drama that is unfolding here in Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 9. A lot of us don't always enjoy reading history, but history is extremely important to understanding what God is doing. The historical background here, before before we read it, by the way, you you can you can find you know the history that is listed for us here in Isaiah. You could also go home today and you could read from Second Kings, uh, verse uh, chapters fifteen and sixteen. You can also go to Second Chronicles twenty eight. There are some other places you can go to, but I think this covers it. You could also, if you have access to it, uh, you can read from the annals of Tiglas Pileser III, because we also have his secular historical content that matches what the scripture says. What is happening here is this is somewhere between 735 and in, in, in 740 B.C. And Assyria is the big superpower of the region. And they are horrible. Many historians have referred to them as the Nazis of the ancient Near East, while some historians say that is too complimentary. They were... A, a nation that believed in power and using that power to squash everyone who stood in their way. And they would not just come in and, and conquer a region and, and then expect to receive tribute. What, what they would do is they would con- come in, they would conquer the region, and then they would move those people moved them out of their land and they would bring Assyrians into the land 
and for the, the ones who had remained in the land, there was a, a very purposeful, intentional process of intermarrying the Assyrians with the native group of that area so that they could breed them out of existence. At the slightest hint of rebellion, they would come in and crush everyone. They were very scary. What's happening is some of the little nations that live around Judah have decided that they need to partner up with one another in order to take a stand against the bully. And what is happening is the northern kingdom of Israel, who has already rebelled against God's covenant, against God's worship, and against God's king, and have split away from, from the temple, have split away from the throne of David, have split away from the promise of Second Samuel 7 that there would be one from the line of David who would always sit upon an eternal throne and reign forever. They have rejected all of this. And now what is happening is that they, they are partnering up with Judah's enemies in order to put pressure on Judah to force Judah to join their little alliance. King Ahaz, who is an evil and wicked king, who is not like his father Jotham, who is not like his grandfather Uzziah, who is not like King David. He's not a good king. He is like the kings of Israel. He is an idolater. He is such an idolater that he sacrifices one of his own sons in idol worship. He introduces a heightened level of idolatry to Judah, which was already struggling with idolatry. He has the priests remove the bronze altar at the temple that God had gifted to his people, where they would find the, the promise of his salvation and has instead had the priesthood build an altar like an altar he saw being used in the idol worship in Assyria. He is an evil king. He does not believe the covenant promises. Well, he says no to the alliance, but not because he's a good king, not because he's trusting in God's promise. Instead, what he does, because he is scared, 
is he rejects the offer of an alliance, which leads the alliance to attack Judah. And what we know is that even though they don't ultimately conquer Jerusalem, what we know is that they have great success in removing portions of Judah's land, which was part of their eternal inheritance. What we know is that over 120,000 warriors are killed in one day. What we know is over 200,000 women and children are taken captive by their brothers and sisters of Israel, and they are enslaved. We know that they are looted as the cities in the south are are being attacked and, and looted by the Philistines. They are losing their land inheritance. They are losing wealth. They are losing warriors. They are losing people. This little nation consisting of two tribes is getting smaller and weaker. And what we are told is this is because they had walked away from Yahweh. God is the one who is behind everything that is happening. And he is using it to humble his people, to call, cause them to call out to him in repentance. But that is not what Ahaz does. Instead, what Ahaz does is he reaches out to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, as I mentioned earlier, and gives him a bunch of gold and silver from the temple and from the king's house gold and silver that had been the inheritance of God's people that God had gifted to his people through the victories that God had won for them over their enemies. Ahaz is just giving it away. And the brief respite that it, that it brings for Judah doesn't last. Because what Tiglath-Pileser does is he comes down and he defeats the kings that are against Ahaz. And he does that because these kings are against him. And what did I say? The, the slightest hint of rebellion, what would they do? Crush it. So Ahaz does. He crushes, or, or so Tiglath-Pileser does. He crushes Ahaz's enemies. But then guess what he does? I'm already in the neighborhood. I'll just swoop on down to Judah. I bet they have a lot more gold and silver because they had this beautiful temple. And so he goes in and he attacks Ahaz. All of this is happening because of the sin of Ahaz, because of the sin of the priesthood. Because of the sin of the people. Isaiah chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. 
In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim there is another way of saying Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheher Jashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the throne of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have revealed these words to us, not merely to bring yourself glory as the God who reveals himself, but because we need this word as your people, who so often need to walk by faith with courage, but who so often experience fear and the temptation not to follow you as you have revealed because we think we can come up with a better way that isn't so hard, that isn't as difficult. When what we need, Lord, is to embrace what you have revealed. And so, Lord, I ask that you would set our hearts upon you as you reveal this word to us through your spirit. And make it effectual to the strengthening and firming of our faith. 
that we may indeed be a people who are courageous in faith. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We received this week a a beautiful postcard invitation to a Christmas event that is being put on by the Gideons of Paulding County. Our brothers who are desirous of continuing to bear witness to God in Christ and, and to do so in order to see people saved from their sins. A very worthy thing to be about. I was excited when I, when I saw it. And then I saw the title of the event. Come to the presentation, Birthday Party for Jesus. Now I understand that some people connect with the Incarnation by referring to it as Jesus' birthday. And I know there are people whom I love who will put on their Facebook page this Christmas, Happy Birthday, Jesus. And so this is not meant in any way to be overly critical or dismissive of connecting to the incarnation of Jesus Christ in this way. But it is a very dangerous way to engage with the incarnation. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, The world will never starve of wonders, but only the absence of wonder. And in referring to Jesus' birth, or referring to Christmas as Happy Birthday Jesus, what that does, even though it's not the intention, is it, it shrinks down what is actually happening in the Incarnation, which is a mystery that is incomparable for us. That God is taking on flesh and remaining fully God while also being fully man. Where the high and holy exalted one who inhabits eternity takes up residence with the lowly and the contrite, the broken, the scared, the small, the weak, the seemingly insignificant. Part of what God is is correcting is this violence and injustice that is so often perpetrated from the strong to the weak. And it's not only leaders like Tiglath-Pileser who do this. This is happening in Israel. 
who because of wanting to seize power and refusing to submit to Solomon's son have formed their own kingdom. They've created their own line of kings. And by the way, there's no actual line because whoever just kills the other king gets to be king. This is how Pekah, by the way, became king in Israel. He became king because he didn't like the king that he served. He was the captain of the armies of Israel, serving under under a king whose daddy had taxed the Israelites to death in order to pay tribute to Tiglath-Pileser. He was tired of the of of the the wealth of Israel being taxed to be given to this foreign king. And so he kills his king, sets himself up as king, and then goes about the business of trying to build an alliance that he thinks will free him from the tyranny of Assyria while he himself is as tyrannical as the one he wants freedom from. And not only is this happening in the nations, not only is it happening in Israel, it's happening in Judah. If you read chapter 1 of Isaiah, part of what's happening is that God is calling Judah as being dumber than an ox. At least the donkey knows its master. Y'all don't even know that. And he says, you are profaning my worship and you are profaning my law. And one of the key infractions that he mentions is that the strong are taking advantage of the weak. But God is for the weak. He is for the fatherless. He is for the widow. He is for the orphan. It's not just injustice that is being perpetrated from the strong to the weak. It is the complete contradiction of the values of God. And it is a complete contradiction to who God has revealed himself to be and what God has revealed that he is about. Yes, he is the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, but he will dwell with the lowly and the contrite. This is what is happening. This is the wonder Beloved, this is the true wonder of the advent. That God is coming as the one who is high and holy. Who will dwell not only with the lowly and contrite, but as one who becomes lowly and contrite.
as his birth is not that of a king, but one of poverty. There's not a room in the inn, right? He has to be born in a barn. The one who is high and holy, who inhabits eternity, takes on flesh so that he might inhabit a manger. As I said to you four years ago, the Sunday when I candidated with this congregation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has given us a gift in reminding us that it is God who is in the manger. Why was that important to Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Well, because he was in prison. And he was engaged. And he was looking forward to being married to his young, beautiful wife. But he was in prison. Maria, his fiancée, is expressing fear. It's not too crazy to try to understand, is it? She's fearful. She's terrified. She is concerned that the Nazis are going to kill him and rob them of their future. Bonhoeffer writes to her on December 13, 1943, Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria. Even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas tide, we shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why. And above the darkness already enshrouding humanity, we will be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas about Christmas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault. That is all. God is in the manger, wealth in poverty, light in darkness, succor or comfort in abandonment. No evil can befall us, whatever men may do to us. They cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world, and rules our lives. What do we do as the people of God? When we get that diagnosis of cancer, when we get that diagnosis that our bodies are out of control and there's, that there is nothing we can do to 
to stop the decay of what sin is doing within us? What, what happens when your relationships feel so broken that, that it's hard to, to look at one another, let alone speak to one another? But what about when the struggles that we face, what about when they are directly connected to our worship of God? What about when they are directly connected to our service to God and to His world? What happens when we identify ourselves with God in Christ to such a degree that we are viewed as being an enemy of the state? We're the mere associating ourselves with those who have been arrested and thrown into jail, we are willing to suffer with them because we will take them food to jail, because we will take them blankets to jail, because we will take care of them in jail and thereby associate ourselves with them, where we might even suffer the plundering of our own goods. Isn't this what the writer of Hebrews just described for us at the end of Hebrews 10? That sometimes devotion to God doesn't bring a nice, easy, happy, little trite life where there's a, a lot of birthday parties. But sometimes it brings struggle and suffering. Because as we said last week, and as we sang again today, there is a pining sadness within us as we are waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ. What does our faith latch hold of then? Well, Isaiah tells us in these first nine verses. He tells us, take heart, be at peace, be quiet, don't flip out. That's what it says literally in the Hebrew. Some manuscripts say freak out. Don't flip out over this. Be quiet, be still, and know that I am the Lord. Don't worry about this. Why? Well, here's why. In 65 years, your enemies won't even exist anymore. There's your hope. Does that sound hopeful to you? You're in the midst of the struggle. You're in the midst of the conflict. Your heart is ill at ease. Your nerves are on edge. You are feeling the, the, the tyranny of your emotions, struggling with fear and apprehension, wrestling with doubt, anxiety. If, if, I, if I'm loving God and walking with Him, why are things this difficult? Shouldn't, shouldn't they be going better? Do not fear. 
just 65 years from now, the people who are killing you and taking your stuff, tyrannizing you, in 65 years, they won't even exist. What is it that Isaiah holds out to Ahaz and to this little nation of Judah? He holds out to them the promise of a future deliverance that will be experienced by the next generation. Now, for many of us, this doesn't sound very hopeful. Many of us, we, we, we want an answer right now where, where God swoops in and says, don't worry, I got you. Because you're my children, I'll make sure nothing bad happens to you. Because you're mine, I'll make sure that you just walk with ease through this fallen, cursed world where it won't affect you at all in any way whatsoever. And any time someone seeks to sin against you, I'll, I'll make sure that they're not able to do so. And any time that you're going to sin within yourself, I'll make sure you never sin. That's what we want to hear from God. We want to hear when the doctor says, Cancer, we want to pray and hear in a couple days that, oh, it's miraculously gone. I would want to hear that. But that's not what God promises. There is not always an immediate relief of the distress, even when the distress is so devastating, it feels as if you're going to die and sometimes actually do. Is death the end? Is devastation the end? Is the destruction of someone sinning against us or us sinning against ourselves, is that the end? is the only hope we have is that God does something immediate in the moment. Beloved, the promise from the very beginning, the instructions from the very beginning, is that in looking to God by faith, we were always waiting for a future reality to come. Before the fall into sin in the garden, the promise was if you fast from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if, if you, you know, eat or feast from the trees, all the other trees I've given you, if, if you do that, <clears throat> then at some point in the future, you will then get to eat from the tree of life. There was always a future orientation even before sin. But with the reality of sin, there was certainly the hope that God gave us 
that he wasn't done with us. Even though, as we read from Isaiah 57, even though he sees our sin, he's going to heal us. He knows we're broken. He knows we're sinful. He knows that we are but dust. And he has determined to save us for his glory. And so he's going to heal us. But even that healing is the promise that has a future orientation. Look to the child who will be born of the seed of the woman. And from the promise, the promise and the instruction from the very beginning, beloved, is that there's a future orientation to the deliverance. And that future deliverance is seen and anticipated in the image of a child. He does not promise, I'm going to send you this conquering king who will, who will have all these grand armies that will swoop in in glory and adulation and just wipe people out. He says, look to the child who will be born from the seed of the woman who will be struck, who will struggle, who will be hurt, who will go through judgment. And yet will conquer that way. One who will be struck and will win. Where even the very strike that will come against him will be the death-giving blow that will bring his victory. This has always been the promise. There is a future orientation. We are to look to the image of the child. Not only were they waiting from the, for the seed from the, from the woman, they were also waiting for the child who would be born from the line of David. It was very obvious Ahaz wasn't it. There was a need for another baby. They were looking, even as David in fulfillment of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7, that he would always have a son on the throne. David has ascended the throne, and yet David is not who they're looking for. They're looking for David's greater son. They're looking for a child to come. This has always been what the hope of God's people is tied to. And so what does... God tell Isaiah to do not only does he say go and say these words to him but he says take your child and the words that will come from Isaiah are not the only message That God has for Ahaz and for his people. For he sets before them. What should give them the confidence. That even though they're waiting for some future deliverance. That there is a child that God is setting before them. In which the message of hope cannot be missed. 
Now, it is for you and me because we don't speak Hebrew. We see, oh, well, Isaiah has this child named Sha'er Jashuv. Well, obviously. Yeah, I, I, I get what's going on here. Sha'er Jashuv. Sha'er Jashuv is a name that means a remnant will return. The words from Isaiah are comfort that this is not your end. And so you don't have to freak out, just trust me. The image of the child shows them that the judgment God is bringing will not be final and ultimate. Because there will be a remnant that is preserved. Look to the child. Look to the image of that which says nothing obvious about strength or victory or any of those things that we associate with winning and with hope. And that is because, beloved, God loves to put his power on display through what is weak and small and seemingly insignificant. And if we're honest, when we're wrestling with doubt and when we are wrestling with fear, because we know that to follow God in a difficult situation is going to cost us. What's really going on is asking within ourselves, is the cost worth it? Why would I purposely walk into a humiliating situation? Why would I open myself up to the vulnerability of one who will hurt me why will, why will I trust in some future deliverance that may not even come within my lifetime and possibly be thrown into prison because of my worship of Christ or to experience the plundering of my goods or to experience physical harm because I'm making myself vulnerable to serve God? The answer, beloved, is Sha'er Jashuv. That even when the devastation seems so far beyond restoration, where death itself seems to be the end of what God is calling you to, what we remember as we look to the child and the promise that a remnant will return. We remember, beloved, through the image of the child that God is in the manger. 
And He goes through with us what we have to go through. And He went through it to the point of death. But then He was raised from the death, from the dead. And He became the first of a new race of human. A resurrected, glorified human. And a remnant returned. And that remnant of one has been multiplying and multiplying and multiplying through the ages. As what began with one in Jesus Christ has led to many sons and daughters among those who are united to him by faith and who have been born from above with him. There is no devastation that we can face in serving the Lord that can stop us from participating in the realities of the new heavens and the new earth. And what God reminds us of as we see him in the manger is that the way that he accomplishes this is not the way you and I expect or even want. He loves to accomplish his cosmic purposes through what looks weak and lowly and poor and insignificant. Beloved, it is through that child that the Father will constrain everything to the new heavens and the new earth. Though the deliverance may not be today, though our discipleship may not guarantee that we don't go through hard times, though our discipleship may actually call us to purposeful, active suffering. Beloved Sha'er Jeshuv, the hope of the resurrection is ours because that child who grew up who was born from the dead, is coming again. And in the second coming, he will put the full display of his might in front of everything. And he will once and for all crush all of his and our enemies and fully introduce us into the eternal glories of his unopposed kingdom. Beloved, this Christmas season, this Advent time, don't minimize the mystery of the Incarnation. And don't get swept away by all the fun stuff that will be part of this time. Keep your faith set on the image of the child that God is in the manger. 
Jesus is on the throne. And while we wait for him to return, we do so with the courage of a firm faith that does not shrink back, but perseveres. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us this morning as your people. In the midst of all the different things that are going on around us and within us. Not to look for relief from these things by looking to earthly things. Help us, Lord, not to put our confidence in princes. Help us to realize, Lord, that there is nothing happening in our life that is apart from your providential intention and care. Help us to see, Lord, that, that what doubt does is it, it just it, it sows within us a um, becoming destabilized in our faith. And so, Lord, when we do experience doubt, help us to take that doubt to you as we remember the image of the child, the future deliverance that is sure, and that we wait as those who are filled with the Spirit as those with whom you dwell in order that you will finally and ultimately lead us out of the lowliness and contrition of our present circumstance to the glorified exaltation of a share in the eternal inheritance of our great King, Jesus Christ. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.